Hey, Brandon here, and welcome to Transform Your Workplace. It is great to have you on the podcast. Quick reminder that we still have our annual What People Want From Work survey open until July 31st. And once you sign up, we'll give you instructions and all the tools that you need to survey your entire workforce about what they want out of work, what's going to make them more engaged, more happy, and you're going to get a lot of great feedback for it. So you sign up before July 31st, the survey will be open all the way through the end of August, and then you will get a free report by October with your quantitative analysis of what people want from work. There are some buy-up options, and you'll have more information on that too. Okay, today's episode, I had a conversation with Mo Carrick. She is the founder of Momentum and the best-selling author. This interview is centered around her book, Brave Space Workplace, Making Your Company Fit for Human Life. I got to tell you, I absolutely love this book. I found myself nonstop highlighting it. There's tons of things that I'm going to reference later on. I'm such a huge proponent of making workforces more human. People are such a huge component to our productivity and the economic benefits that we realize as in our society. And if you don't treat people well and you don't take care of them, they're going to be stressed. They're going to be burned out. They're treated transactionally. I think a lot of employers are getting it all wrong. And I think Mo really puts it into perspective in this book. And what's great about it is she really describes what's wrong. We actually reference dying for a paycheck. She references it several times in the book. And we talk about that on the podcast. And I think that's a great lens to look at workplaces from because I think a lot of people are burned out. They're stressed. And that's just the way things are. But it doesn't have to be that way. And what's great about Mo's book is she gives you the blueprint and all these action items for transforming the workplace into being one that's human. Please listen to this full episode. You're going to love it. I also encourage you to go get her book. And I want to give you an incentive to do so. Retweet this out. Tag me, Brandon Laws, and tag Mo in it. And I'll put like a sample tweet in the body of the show notes so you can use it. But I want you to retweet this or just tweet and grab a quote or something from it just to let people know that you listen to this and to let me know, and I will get you a free book. So I'll do that for the first three people that do it. I'll kind of monitor that. But I just love this book so much. I want to make sure that people get a chance to either listen to the conversation or go get the book. So anyways, enjoy the discussion. I'd love to get your feedback. Go to Apple Podcasts. Five-star review would be fantastic. And of course, a written review would be amazing. But you know, if you don't want to do that, please reach out to me on LinkedIn or Instagram and direct message me or just follow me, whatever. I love connecting with people and I love hearing if this is making an impact on you. Again, we're out to transform the workplace and happy to share this information with you, but I want it to be very collaborative for you as well. Enjoy the episode. Talk to you next time. Hey, Mo, it's so great to have you on the podcast. I'm so excited to have you. Thanks, Brandon. I'm so happy to be here. Your book, we're going to talk about Brave Space Workplace, Making Your Company Fit for Human Life. I don't say this very often, but I absolutely loved your book. I've got so many notes and we probably won't be able to cover everything that I want to talk about. But as I found in your book, there's so many great quotes within it, whether it's quotes you actually had in bold headings or just nuggets throughout the book. And I want to start with a quote that I found later on in the book. You said, my motivation for writing Brave Space Workplace comes from my frustration in knowing 
that we've understood for a long time what work conditions bring out the best in people, yet few companies have built themselves accordingly, end quote. You know, I look at that quote and I think something about the workplace that is so weird to me is that we have people working within it. We know it makes us productive if we have uh, great people that are aligned with the business working, but yet it doesn't seem like it's as human as it really should be. So I want to kick it to you and, and ask you, why are organizations the way they are? I'm not saying all of them, but why are most organizations not as human as they need to be to be able to get the best out of people? Oh, it's such a good question. And I'm so honored that you read the book and, you know, took so many notes. And it's funny hearing that quote back because I'm like, wow, I said that. I'm brilliant. You know, you are, but it's like you listen to it. <laughs> you are brilliant. Yeah, like, oh, it was a genius right. quote. When you write a book, you're like, you just don't know. Some of it's really bad and some of it's okay. And so I appreciate that. You know, I was just talking with somebody about this the other day. They asked sort of a similar question around like, you know, why is it that we can't do this better? And I got my graduate degree many years ago and we knew then, you know, what we know now. And so why is that? And here I don't have like a definitive answer, but there's two things, Brandon, that jump out to me the most strongly, you know, in my research and in my experience with organizations. One is that I think we still have a mindset that was founded and formed in the Industrial Revolution which was, you know, when we had an uptick of citizens moving from rural areas, doing primarily agriculture, agrarian lifestyles for work, and coming into cities to make the factories work in North America. And that similarly happened earlier in Europe. And that's when we first really saw the evolution of managerial structure. You know, you had an overseer who would be on a floor of a woolen mill, let's say, and have you know, 200 people had a machine and his job was to control the resources to manage, you know, the outputs. And I think that mindset, even though that's not how we tend to think of organizational life anymore, that we don't have overseers and we aren't organized in that way that was proliferating in the industrial revolution, we've built business and we've certainly built managerial theory largely on the mindsets that came from there. The other factor for me is that it is similar in the sense that, you know, economics as a field of study and as a proliferation of research has some of its core models happened in the late 1800s. Mm -hmm. And those thinkers couldn't have ever imagined that we would run out of some of the resources that we had. I, you know, I don't think they could even have imagined it. How could you ever have known, for example, that there wouldn't be enough water or that climate change would have happened? And so the economic modeling around profitability and growth as always happening in a direction that was upwards and to the right on a chart drives how we've designed organizations, especially, of course, in the for-profit arena, but that carries over to nonprofit and governmental structures as well. So I think those two mindsets really drive a relentless pursuit on profit as the only North Star and a mindset that people are more like machines than they are human beings and need to be controlled and organized tightly in order to produce their best work. I think for me, that's the best I can come up with about why we still don't quite have it right is that these mindsets continue to persevere and drive some of our implicit bias and our assumptions about what work looks like and how it should unfold. I think what's beautiful about your book is you do talk about profit and the economics business throughout it. And I think Profit is a good place to start. You said it's the North Star. I believe that because uh, profit is a tool you can reinvest back in your organization. And I think the way in which we get to profit is probably different now than it was back in the Industrial Revolution time or even 10, 20 years ago. I think we're entering a time 
Because you say throughout the book, this is the work we do at Zenium as well. We're so focused on people and communication and transparency and authenticity. Like I think just the workplace is evolving. And you even mentioned in the prologue that people need to admit their failures to create a better world for themselves. And I believe that wholeheartedly. You quoted Brene Brown time and time again throughout the book. And Mm -hmm. I love her work. I know there's a lot of people that love her work. And it's all about vulnerability. And I think in order to achieve profit, that's the North Star we're talking about, we have to lead differently. Do you believe Mm -hmm. that too? Yeah, totally. And I think that we will get to profit when we lead differently. Like, (laughs) so to me, there's a cycle of this because, you know, we can't be profitable if we don't have the best and brightest talent working for us, innovating and creating the solutions that we need. We also can't be profitable if we suck all the resources out of our environment so that we can't make the things we need to make. So we've got to be thinking in longer term ways, both you know, around all of our resources, which include the people. And leadership, I think, is responsible for figuring out that alchemy, as I call it in the book, what is the alchemy for elevating and activating people to bring their highest and best talents to work every day? We know that employers worry a lot about churn. There's a lot of data out there about how much it costs to replace a talent once it leaves your company, whether you're a small company or a mega one. But we don't talk about how expensive it is to have talent working for you, people working for you who are underutilized, who are only bringing a small percentage of their greatness to your work. That's expensive because they're holding a full-time position often. So they're related, aren't they? Yeah, for sure. So before I get too deep in this conversation, Brave Space Workplace, it's a term I had never heard before. Describe in your own words what Brave Space Workplace is and what it looks like. Well, I define a Brave Space Workplace pretty simply. To me, it's a workplace that is created deliberately in order for people to bring their full selves, both perfect and flawed, in order to do great things together. That's how I define it. And I go on to sort of, of course, add some detail about what that looks like. But for me, there's some core elements of what it takes to create a base-to-base workplace that really sets up the circumstances in which companies can enliven, elevate, activate, and draw forward the skills and talents that their people have rather than dumbing it down, diminishing it, mm-hmm. not utilizing it, and uh, cycling it. Yeah. Now, I want to get there. We're going to start on the other end of the spectrum first because you talk about toxic workplaces quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Describe what you're seeing out there right now, why you're completely tired of it, and then what are some of the factors that make up a toxic workplace? And I'm sure it happens over time, but there's got to be these core components to what makes the toxic workplaces. Mm, yeah, definitely. There's a lot more probably that's toxic than what we can talk about in this podcast. <laughs> and same thing in my book. You know, I tried to write the book so that you could read it on a plane flight. And so I don't necessarily get to all of it. But there are some things that I'm consistently noticing are contributing to toxic workplaces today in particular. One is 24-7 access and our devices. Yes. Does that impact you? <laughs> well, I just think in, in because of the way business is done nowadays, it's, it's you know, most of it, we're white collar, we're accessible at all times. And I, you make the point, like, even if we're nine to five, technically, people are connected at all times. And so I would never would have thought I would have contributed to a toxic work environment. But I see your point. So you can keep elaborating on that. Yeah, I think what happens that creates the toxicity is that we end up with overwhelm. We end up with employees who can't actually rejuvenate, rest, and recover. One of the folks I also quote in the book, in addition to Brene a couple of different times, is Jeffrey Pfeffer, who wrote Dying for a Paycheck. And Jeffrey has really 
He's a Stanford professor who's studied the physical impacts, the health costs of work. And I think this 24 access and device world that we're in infringes on people's capacity to balance. It contributes to their overwhelm. And so over a period of time, unfettered, it does diminish us. It contributes to diabetes, heart disease, stress-related illness, mental health. We've got huge upticks of anxiety, depression, suicide, mm -hmm. you know, loneliness, and isolation are an epidemic, according to our Surgeon General, and the loneliness disproportionately affects men in our society. So that toxicity, the device relationship we have with our devices and having work be something that's accessible at every minute, I think is impacting us on many social levels. That often comes primarily through the workplace. Another one that I see as a toxic dynamic in workplaces today is a lack of inclusion. Diversion and inclusion have been a focus in organizational life for many years, but we were seeing a sea change of you know people talking about that diversity alone isn't enough. We have to also really create equity and create inclusion. And we know that when organizations don't have truly inclusive cultures where some people versus other people are insiders and everyone else is outsiders and we aren't able to tap into those differences, we create toxicity, both from a lack of idea generation and a lack of openness to the phenomenal, but also because of specific exclusion. Some people aren't welcome here and don't feel welcome here. And so even if they're working for us, they're not feeling that capacity to be brave because they don't feel safe. So I think that's another one for me that's toxic. One that comes up often with leaders, and I have to tell you, Brandon, in the workshops that I do, I've never had a leader disagree with me on this. I always ask, as a leader, I say, do you have enough time to think? Oh, yes. I love that. <laughs> I love that part. Yeah. Yeah. And people always are like, no, okay. I don't have time. And then I often ask, when do you think? And it's not at work. And I always say, isn't that ironic that you're, as a leader, especially, you're hired for the quality and camber of your thinking? And you're telling me that you do not and cannot even remember a time when you have a constant state of busyness. And it's even funny because even at home where you have time to think, what are we doing? We're connected to our devices. 100% of the time. Right? It's crazy. No, it is. And have you seen some of that research that's coming out about deep work? Yeah. Isn't it awesome? Like this whole idea of we've got to go in. We need some time. We need like three to four hours at a minimum yeah. to do the deep work. My husband and I were traveling. We were on a cycling tour last fall in Italy. And we went to Da Vinci, which is where Leonardo da Vinci is from. And we went to the museum, beautiful museum. And I was just so struck as I often have been about the plethora of ideas that he created. I mean, he just was a genius, obviously and invented so many things. So we were saying, how did that happen? How does one man be so curious and invent so many things in his lifetime? And then I started thinking about it. I thought, well, he didn't have a cell phone. He didn't have probably to take primary care of his family. His wife was probably doing that. And he had a lot of time to think with no technology, no commute. And that's probably a factor. When I write, I've noticed that I have to sequester myself. It's like I say to my family and colleagues and friends, I'm going in, you know. I'm <laughs> shutting off everything. <laughs> I notice it takes me like 45 minutes to even get into being able to wrestle with the ideas that I want to write about. And then it takes me a couple hours to start getting a few words down on paper. And then I got to sort of like come up for air. So deep work is critical to organizational effectiveness and to individual human effectiveness. And we don't have enough time to think it works. So I think that's another one. It's related to something else that I want to say around your question about toxic. And that is that consistently in every sector in my career, to most toxic dynamic we hear about is leaders who are bad for people. Yep, yep. That was actually going to be my follow-up is it seems like 
bad managers and leaders are the major cause of toxic workplace. You hear the quote all the time, you know, people leave managers, not the company itself. And so why do we hang on to bad managers? I think that's the million dollar question is why are we hanging on to them if they're not effective? Right. Well, we just talked about that in a session, a Brave Space session. We hang on to them for a variety of reasons, actually. And I think of it this way, you know, we all know our company, whether it's large or small or in the middle, through our manager. I say to CEOs all the time, you can be the best CEO on this earth. And if employee X, who works five levels or even two levels down from you or 25 levels, is working for Mary, who's a terrible manager, then that employee X's experience of your company is crap. And no matter how powerful you and your executive team are at creating healthy culture, we work for people. We know our company through the person who is our immediate supervisor. And so from the front line to the C-suite, that's why that relationship is so primary. And that is why people leave companies is because that relationship becomes problematic. It's the number one stated reason. So why do we keep them around? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons. The one I hear the most often is that they are good individual contributors, especially in sales. Mm-hmm. Yep. They can sell a lot of stuff. So we're like, all right, they're high producer. We don't care if they do this. Here, they're manage high, some know, people. <laughs> exactly. And profit as a North Star, right? Whatever else, even though he's got, you know, he's terrible with people, he's bringing in money. I think another is the protected class or the legacy leader, the person who's been around so long, we just can't imagine uh, letting them go. Even if, you know, maybe they're a founder, even though they might be terrible for people. I think also sometimes we keep people around who are bad for people because they are really strong at a technical area. They're really good at this unique dimension of artificial intelligence or, you know, whatever that specialty might be, or they're a surgeon. There's no other surgeon like them. Well, that's great. Keep them in an individual contributor role, but don't start having them manage people because it's just not going to be successful for the health of your overall company. You referred earlier and throughout the book to Jeffrey Pfeffer's book, Dying for a Paycheck. Mm-hmm. Ironically, I read that about three weeks ago and I did a mm-hmm. discussion, not with him, but with somebody in the local area on this. And I have this podcast coming out soon. I got to be honest, very depressing book. I think mm-hmm. it really has data and really paints a picture about what workplaces look like and why people are literally dying and stressed mm-hmm. out and what all the contributing factors are. So what was it in that book that you know, describe the way our organizations, or at least most of them are operating right now and the way they're treating people that really stuck out to you. It's similar to what I address a bit in Braceface Workplace, which is that people are treated like machines. Mm. And he doesn't use those words. Those are my words, but our inability and our lack of capacity to facilitate designs, structures, and processes that look at the needs of human beings their health in particular, of course, is what he highlights, is what really gets in the way. And I think where his direct connection to illness and death and problems is really powerful. And it's very much validated by my lived experience consulting to hundreds, if not thousands of organizations over the past 30 years. Yeah, I'm actually really fortunate to have read his book first and then read yours in a follow-up because I felt like I'm sure your research was completely separate, but it tied in really well with his, and it, but yours is action-oriented. It's like, here's the state of work, here's what we need to do, and here's how to do it. I, I really felt like yours provided the blueprint for, for how to get there. Well, yeah. thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. I really wanted to do that, you know, and I thought of it as, as really an accompaniment and a support of Dying for a Paycheck, as well as Brene's newest book, Dare to Lead, which I see mm-hmm. as kind of my preferred leadership curriculum, you know, since I am certified in her approach, I use that for leaders, but it's not only 
about a courage building practice. There's more structural dimensions of what we do. And I think Pfeffer's book wakes us up if we read it and we take it seriously. And where I want to talk to people is, all right, now you get it. Now you've got visceral reaction to this is not good. Now what do you Yeah, think? that's a perfect way to illustrate it. It's like it wakes us up <laughs> with Pfeffer's book because it's yeah. very, it's disturbing in some ways. What's yeah. cool about your book, and I read this last night, cover to cover in like probably two, three hours. I'm a pretty slow reader. Afterwards, I went on Goodreads because I'm a big book nerd. And I gave you five stars because I honestly I love this book. I wrote a review and I said, it was just really short. And I said, I'm going to reference this for years to come because mm-hmm. I felt like what your book provided was a toolkit and like, a guideline for how to create this workplace that we're aspiring to become. And you have so many like step by steps. And there's so much to unpack in this podcast, which can't, I just want to encourage people to go get the book because it's really phenomenal. Oh, I so appreciate that. That means so much to me. You know, it's a big question. How do we create brave space workplaces? And you know, you can not only get your PhD in it, but you can study it your whole life, which I practically have, right? I mean, I hope I'm not that close to the end of my life, but it has been my goal for a long time. And I think it's both simple and complex. You know, when we think about the things that we as human beings can do, whether it's space travel to energy efficiency for designing coffee makers, we are really amazing. Our capacity is amazing. And this thing is really hard for us. And so I'm trying hard in the book to put forward both a simple Mm -hmm. roadmap for people to activate change wherever they sit in the organization, while also acknowledging that there is complexity to this, which is why I call it alchemy, because it's not just data and science. It's also about heart and connection, the mess that we are. And what's great about people, we're imperfect. There's nuances to each of us. We're all individuals and we're creative and everybody's got their own strengths and weaknesses. And I think when good things happen in business and even in nonprofit space and doing good in the community is people. It's all people that bring themselves to work and contribute. And people need certain things in order to bring them whole selves to work. What are some of those? Because you talk about that in the book. Yeah. Well, in the core concept of the book, in the how-to part are what I call the levers creating for creating a base-based workplace, as you remember, and there's five of them. And I use kind of a reporting convention to describe them as the who, the what, the where, the when, the why, and the how. And the who is really the people side. I call it the human essentials. I see two acts in that part. One is leaders with head and heart habits. We've talked about that. A colleague of mine said to me years ago, she said, you know, sometimes in business, I feel like my Clients are all there like stick figures with giant heads and tiny atrophied hearts. <laughs> that was such a great image because we have business theory has overemphasized, I think, cognition and logic and underemphasized connection, empathy, vulnerability. Some Brene's work speaks so powerfully too, as does others like Patrick Longioni and Daniel Goleman. The second part of that lever is teams who care. And this is, of course, validated by research like Google's Aristotle project that says that teams that have social capital, the ability to tune in to the emotional states of one another, they simply do better. And so what do I as a leader or a team member need to do to create a community in my team that actually cares for one another um, and has social capital so that we can do great things together? And then there's these other four, you know, levers that people need to thrive at work. The second one is what I call the what, which is a conscious culture. 
Culture is simply how we do things here in any organization. And it starts out accidentally, usually at the point that a company or an organization is founded, and then it becomes something we can see and feel and measure. I think that's a really important dimension of how we do it, how we create a brave space workplace. The third lever is what I call the where and the when, which is purposeful design. And that is everything about an organization that is designed. So it could be physical space, but it also can be everything from performance conversations to compensation structures to the process flows on the manufacturing floor. Any design element has a huge role in whether people thrive or suffer. The fourth lever is the why. I call this meaning in context. I think as employers, I'm curious about what you see, Brandon, but I think we often fail to convey to our employees why what they're doing yep. matters. Yep. You know, whether it's the most frontline job or an executive job. Hey, Brandon here to take a quick break to talk about the annual What People Want from Work survey presented by Zenium HR. The survey offers a look into your workplace through your employees' eyes. We're going to reveal what's working, what needs improvement, and what your employees want from the workplace. We're going to cover areas like leadership, workplace culture, management support, rewards and recognition, work environment, and so much more. It's a mix of qualitative and quantitative data. The deadline to register, July 31st, 2019, and the survey will be open until August 31st, 2019. You'll get a free report in the end to tell you all about what your people want from work. You'll get your scores in a nice PDF report. If you want to participate, go to zeniumhr.com forward slash survey and you can sign up right away. Now back to the show. When I was, one of the stories I tell in the book, you probably remember is when I was probably 18 or 19, I took a job in a town that was not my hometown because I wanted to be near my boyfriend. Good reason to take a new job in a new town. And I was a janitor at a hospital. And in that job, I cleaned the floors. I was on a medical surgical floor and I met a woman who was a patient. She was in for gallbladder surgery. And one day I came to work and my boss and, you know, kind of caught me in the hall and he said, did you know Mrs. So-and-so died mm. last night? And I was shocked. I was like, what do you mean? She died? She came in for gallbladder surgery. So he sort of sat me down and he said, well, the reason she died is she got an infection here. And it's probably related to the fact that one of us or someone on the team failed to clean the room oh, with the chemicals goodness. in the proper wow. order. Right. And I was like, all of a sudden, this sort of summer job that I took to be near my boyfriend that I thought really wasn't that important. I listened to him with one ear when I was getting oriented. All of a sudden, I started to feel the gravitas of that job. Like, whoa, I could make a difference to whether someone loses their mother or their sister or their friend. And so my job now became something that mattered to someone. And, you know, that's what we all want. But I think we don't deliver that to people. So they're sort of really disembodied and disconnected from the work itself. And they're just doing it because somebody said it needs to be done. And someone said to me, well, Mo, what if the work they're doing actually doesn't matter? And I said, well, then why are they doing it? Yes, such a great point. What? We'll talk like later on about like healthy teams. And I think it illustrates the point you just made pretty well. So you were talking about like members who share a mission. They listen to each other and they appreciate one another. They're more effective than teams that are trying to be creative with what they're doing. Like, you know, you mentioned cupcakes at birthdays or kegs of beer on Fridays or hosting fun events. Like those things probably aren't that effective because they're short term, like little bursts of energy. But long lasting is effective communication, mission, alignment, purpose, all those things. Is that what you believe as well? 
Absolutely. When I gave my first TED Talk, which was in TEDx San Juan Island, I talked about that because, and I actually blame, I don't want to be too harsh here. And you and I both live really close to Silicon Valley and we're affected by it. Of course, I've got a number of beloved Mm -hmm. clients in the region, but Silicon Valley has contributed to this. The culture of surface perks is what I call it, which is sort of the mythology that if I bolt on delights to my employees that are temporarily fun and create happiness, that it will materially connect my employees to my organization and make them feel like they really thrive. And the research tells us that this isn't actually true. You know, having a nap pod, having an espresso machine on every floor, you know, that's not nice. And it might make me happy in the same way that double stuffed Oreos can make me happy on a bad day, right? But what really makes me thrive is not those things. And so I sometimes say to companies like, okay, take the money you're putting on those things and really apply it to leadership development, to culture building, to healthy and dynamic teams where people feel seen and connected, you're going to get a way bigger uplift. And if you get profitable enough, then great, bring those nap pods back, you know? But I think we're focusing on the wrong thing when we treat employees as if those things are really... I I think when when we're talking about like Silicon Valley and even enterprise level organizations that have nap pods and ping pong tables and beer kegs and all that stuff, to me, this is my personal opinion. I think they do that because it's efficient and it's just easier to do. It's easy to throw money at something. Whereas, you know, they're so big and probably have so many teams that it's hard to build the culture and the team atmosphere and communicate. There's so many managers, right? Like, how do you make all the managers heartfelt and authentic and all these things that we're talking about that's in your book? I think they do it because it's efficient and it's not. But what's, what's fascinating to me is then it trickles down to the small business who thinks, Oh, well, this is what we need to do. We need to mimic what Google's doing or Facebook. We need to have nap pods and we need to have free healthy food at lunch or whatever. Whereas do we believe that this is actually effective or are we doing it because we see how profitable some of these large organizations are and how cool they are? Like, what do you believe? You're so right about that. And I was really interested to discover when I was doing my research for this book that the Small Business Administration has reported that companies that have 500 employees or less still today represent 99.7% of employer firms in the U.S. And yeah, so we have the mega companies, the big five, we know what they are, right? Apple, Microsoft, Google, Facebook, et cetera. They get all the press, most of the press in terms of like management theory and things like we're talking about around employee perks, but they are not the majority of employers. And they can do things that a small employer simply can't do So, you know, for me, how I would answer your question is it comes down to the fairly subjective, qualitative, interactive experiences that we offer our employees and our managers in particular that conveys what matters here, what we really value, and how we can show up as our full selves. That's the work that we want to really invest in. And then we want to design the system to reinforce those kinds of behaviors, truth-telling, rumbling with hard conversations, empathy and compassion, clarity of role. And that's where we're going to get the big lift. You're spot on. It's not anywhere near as easy as just saying, woohoo, we have onsite dry cleaning. I mean, who doesn't want that, right? (laughs) But it's like, it's not something that's going to make me happy long term. You talked about the advantages a small organization has versus this enterprise level that we're describing. What are some of those advantages? Because I think you were spot on in the book about this where they're smaller, they're nimble, they could probably make changes faster. But like, describe that. Describe how smaller organizations have an advantage to implement the Brave Space workplace compared to like an enterprise level organization. 
I think the main difference is that they've got the agility to be more nimble. As a system thinker, I often think about the bullwhip phenomenon and how we never know in any system if we snap the whip here, what the impact's going to be out of the tip of the whip. And the same is true in organizations. I mean, you know this, if I make a change here, it's really hard for me to know, is that going to get me to lift or have the change that impacts here? And I think small companies can be more proactive, small to mid-sized companies to learn about what's working and what's not working because they can make a change here and they can measure and study and better understand, all right, yes, that is having the lift I want. I think bigger companies as bigger systems, the mega companies in particular, is very, very hard to do because the impact of a change, first of all, takes a long time to hit everywhere. And then it gets very diluted because of the many, many subcultures and sub leaders that are out there. But I'd say agility is the main thing. The other thing I would say is that there's usually more proximity to the mm-hmm. senior leaders, which are so important. The senior leaders are so important in terms of the culture and the values of the organization. So I've noticed that small organizations can really benefit from leveraging the alignment and the humanity. Yeah, it seems like people at all levels in a small organization would be closer to the purpose and the mission and feel like they're contributing. Whereas if you're in a large organization, you probably feel like a cog in the wheel unless leadership's really good about communicating. Like your story about you're in a janitor level position, but you're contributing to somebody's health at the end of the day. Like you're probably in a big Mm -hmm. hospital and if they're good at community managers are good at communicating, then that's one thing. But if you're in a, a large organization where they're not really communicating what you're actually contributing towards, that's where I feel like it would just be completely lost. Yeah. And does someone even see me? I, I have a story that a little sad to tell, but I had a client at one time who had a, they were actually a mid-sized company. They weren't a mega company, but they had a guy who came to work on the manufacturing floor. And in his first three weeks, he was injured as sometimes happened. It was like a lifting injury. And he was sent home on disability. And while he was out, he was out for three months. The HR person contacted him, but no one else did. And when he came back to work, he showed up at the factory and they said, oh, we're not sure who your supervisor is now since you've been out on leave, right? So they said, go just wait in the cafeteria, have a coffee and we'll come back. Well, no one came back. And he went home and he was like, this is odd. So he just started, you know, kind of waiting to see what happened. He received a paycheck for six months. And meanwhile, he looked for another job because he was like, forget it. I don't want to work here. And then he went back in. He asked for an appointment with the CEO and he went back in. He said, I just want you to know I was on payroll for six months and no one even noticed that I never came to work. You know, and that's not even a big company excuse, but that's us as human beings in those leadership roles kind of forgetting that this particular human being, you know, that Jim, let's call him, mattered. And that when he didn't show up to work or we didn't know his supervisor was, we needed to give him an answer and help him be seen in order to feel connected to us. I want to talk about a couple quick things because you mentioned robotics, AI, machines, those sort of things. And just Mm -hmm. I'm curious because there's so many trends happening, whether it's in society, business, in tech. What role does this whole shift to AI, machine learning, robotics, the way people are treated at work, and ultimately the overall health of the society. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Have we really discovered the answer yet? (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) No, not, I mean, not really. But what I can tell you from my research is it's definitely a thing, thing, right? It's definitely a thing. And I had a person who works in media say to me recently that some shocking statistic, like 60% of all 
AP articles that go over the wires for newspapers are oh, bot created. Wow. Robot created. I know. It's like, what does this mean for all the scoops, you know, that are out there, all the reporters? We definitely, we know the technology is here to stay. We know that AI, robotics, big data management are not going anywhere. And the chapter you're referring to is, I think it, I title it AI, Machines and Robots, because it's a factor for all of us. What I am heartened by is that there's been some pretty rich studies. One of them was a recent study from Deloitte that speaks about how while technology proliferates and yes. it will eliminate jobs, right? It will eliminate jobs. But what we want it to do and what is very likely that it will do is it will move us towards people-centered jobs that need to really take on the yep. things that machines cannot do. So, you know, as of right now and for the foreseeable future, it's not predicted that machines will do, for example, empathy or human-to-human -human communication and feeling like compassion and vulnerability. Machines are not showing us evidence that they're capable of doing that. And they also consistently are telling us that they are very vulnerable to bias, just like us as humans, because they learn yep. based on the algorithms that we code in. So they're coming out bias as well. I just wrote a, a blog on this topic called <laughs> Alexa Can't Hear Me, <laughs> which is a, a valid phenomenon. Where I take heart is that machines may be able to do automated rote tasks consistently faster with higher quality. They're going to be able to crunch the big data that we can't do as humans and speed that up, which helps us to get better results, move into new markets. Then what's left? are these uniquely human tasks like education, mm -hmm. childcare, leadership, communication, any job that requires human connection is going to be still served by humans. What I'm hoping that means is that some low-wage jobs, education and childcare are good ones, might be lifted and elevated in status and rank because it's going to be humans that need to do them. I also hope that it creates more social fluency around jobs across the gender spectrum. And what I mean by that is, you know, there's a lot of data that says that men who are squeezed out of jobs as manufacturing decreases, for example, are not typically choosing jobs that are typically considered feminine, like yep. nursing and education, because of the bias that exists around the fragile notion mm, we have of masculinity. Point. And so yeah. So as this happens, I think we've got a lot of work to do. I speak about this in my most recent TED Talk to reinforce and reinvigorate a new definition of masculinity that includes movement into these fields where we know we're going to continue to have high or even higher needs, but that machines really can't do. So I think as leaders, we need to be thoughtful about the impact of machines. We need to be deliberate and we need to be talking with the human beings about, okay, machines aren't going away. Here's what they are doing. Here's what they're not doing. Because where you are uniquely special as I think what I love about all the technology advances is that, to your point, it will likely eliminate jobs, but I'm hoping we create new ones out of it. It's such an economic benefit where mm -hmm. you get machines to do these basic mundane tasks that it frees up somebody to do something more meaningful and something better. And I, I truly hope you're right about the point about masculinity and the roles that they choose. So if, if men are primarily choosing things that mm -hmm. can be easily replaced for, by robotics, all that's left is these empathetic roles like a nurse or something like that, or a teacher or you know roles like that mm -hmm. require human-to-human -human interaction. I think that makes society better. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. I think it does make society better. A strong example of that for me, Brandon, is what I'm starting to feel may end up being one of the topics of my next book, my third book, which is the mm. managing of caregiving and working. Because, you know, we've seen some interesting trends in recent years around 
working and of course women, women rising, women getting more seat at the table, et cetera. Still not there yet, but we're making progress. But we also have seen some interesting trends with dynamics like egg freezing in mega companies wow. so women yeah. can delay childbearing. And then also, you know, a positive one like the uptick of paternity leave for men. And many companies now are offering generous paternity leave for men. But what I'm noticing is that men aren't taking it. And so with that, where I think this new definition of masculinity comes in is can we finally have the conversation that says, if the job I have, especially as a leader or an executive, is so all-consuming that I need to have a stay-at-home wife or partner, then maybe we need to rethink this job so that we can have healthy communities. And Or, you know, can a woman take that job and a man can be a primary caregiver for a while without social stigma and further isolation? So I think we've got some social norms to really examine in order to create the kind of new definitions of both masculinity and actually femininity. I think you've done some research on this, but when people say they love their job, maybe you've done a bunch of interviews, what kind of responses do you hear about why people love their job? Mm, those are the best Versus the other side, which is, why do you hate <laughs> right? your job? Probably, totally, totally. When Cami Dunaway and I were writing our first book, Fit Matters, How to Love Your Job, we did so many interviews and heard so many fit stories. And almost everybody has one of both, you know? They say, oh, I love this job, but oh, this job, you know, and they have a, a poor fit story or a job where they were truly miserable. But when people are talking about the jobs they love, here's what I hear them say. They say, gosh, I feel seen. I feel like what I'm doing matters. I feel like I get to use my brain. I feel like I'm learning. I really like the people I work with. We're just a really good team. They're my friends too, outside of work. Sometimes they say, I love my job because it's flexible and my life works because of it. So I'm really grateful for this job because I can make it work within my unique circumstance. So those are, I think, the, the So I'm at a point where this is a challenging part of the podcast for me because I could literally talk to you for another hour, but I got to let you go. So I'm going to ask you one more question and then I'll, then I'll let you go. Let's see, what do I want to ask? <laughs> so, okay, here's where I want to go. You state that people being real and authentic is really a core component to creating a great workplace. What are some ways that people can be mm. real or at least try to be a little bit more real when it's so hard for them to do it? Well, I think what is incumbent on all of us is to remember that self-awareness yep. is key. To be in partnership at home and at work, to be a leader for sure. I need to really give some thought and spend some time looking at who I am. How do I roll? What matters to me? What do I need? Where do I need help? What am I good at? What do I suck at? And if I can get more solid and grounded in that, then I think it allows me to look at that next piece that you're asking about, which is, okay, so how is it that I want to show up? If I know what matters to me, it becomes a lot easier for me to think about how do I want to show up? Because I've got centeredness about what's important. And then, of course, we have to work, as Brene's research points to so strongly, we've got to work at debunking the myths we have about vulnerability and show up as we are, both perfect and flawed. And I think, you know, social media doesn't help this very much right now because we have this dynamic in our world today where we have curated identities. You know, we can put on our Facebook or our Instagram posts, like the way we think we want the world to see us. And that's not really the way it really is. And so I think the real work 
about what you're asking is for me to know myself and then to figure out how am I going to give myself permission with self-compassion to show up in the vulnerable way that is all of me, that is my strengths, but also my Achilles heel. And when I do that, it breeds further connection. I feel seen. I feel part of the herd. I'm successful if I'm a leader, I inspire followers. And then it just is generative in that way. So I think that work is really personal and also done with a caring group of supporters who have our back. Okay, Alive, there's one more question. (laughs) But it's really just to to end this conversation with some sort of action item for leaders because that's who's listening Mm -hmm. to this podcast. How, if they want to go on the path to create a brave Mm -hmm. space workplace, what do they do next? And obviously, go get your book. That's the number one. But what do they do after that? Well, I'd certainly love to have them come to some of my workshops. We're also going to be developing some self-guided tools that accompany the book later. But I think in terms of nothing related to my content, I think for a leader like you describe of a small, medium, or large business who really, really is committed and says, I want my workplace to be one where people can bring their whole selves and we just get great things done together. I think that leader should really listen to how are they doing in their organization so far? Really figure out how are they going to get relentlessly curious? about how the organization is so far. Is it a brave space workplace already? What about it is brave and what isn't? Where are people sometimes not telling the truth? Where are they not having hard conversations? Where do people not feel like they're showing up? And then once I've really listened to my system, people around me, I also then want to ask and get really curious about how I impact them. That's the self-awareness piece. How do you see me? What am I doing that's getting in the way, helping or hindering this to be a brave space workplace? and then work with my colleagues to make some design changes that create a new environment, new culture, new practices and processes to uptick how our workplace Mo Carrick is the Brave Space Workplace author. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Mo. This is such a fun discussion. We honestly could have kept going forever, but I know you got to go and I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun talking and we'll do it again sometime. So thanks, Brandon.